This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Fred Kaufman. Fred holds a PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley, where he was distinguished as outstanding instructor. He has created and taught programs in leadership, personal mastery, team learning, organizational effectiveness, and coaching for tens of thousands of participants. His clients include leaders such as Microsoft, Shell, Yahoo, and General Motors. With Sounds True, Fred is the author of a book, Conscious Business, How to Build Value Through Values, as well as a a nine-and-a-half-hour audio training course on conscious business, transforming your workplace and yourself by changing the way you think, act, and communicate. In this audio series, Fred invites listeners to have an open mind and to transform their workplace into an adaptive and resilient community that cultivates intelligence, creativity, and integrity in every member. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Fred and I spoke about the greatest challenge he faces as a consultant, how to be ultimately greedy in a way that actually benefits the whole, and how his life as a Dharma practitioner relates to his life as a business consultant. Here's my very provocative and interesting conversation with Fred Kaufman. The term conscious business has now entered, I think, our vocabulary, and people mean different things when they use the term conscious business. So to begin with, what do you mean by those two words together, Fred, conscious business? First, I would say it's a business that is run by conscious human beings. Um, I do not believe that any organization has some kind of collective consciousness. I I believe that the organization is a denomination for the actions and interactions of individuals who are more or less conscious in those uh, individual actions or their collective action. So your question I would turn into, what does it mean that a business is run uh, by conscious individuals in a conscious way? And for me, that means that people are in touch with what is really meaningful to them. And they see this business as a vehicle to manifest that which called them to initiate the enterprise. Um, There are different levels of this consciousness uh, but 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 the essence of the of of the adjective conscious means being aware and in touch with what's uh, what really matters to you uh, and expressing that important thing in your behavior uh, with with your your partners or your colleagues in the business and more importantly as you work together to serve the needs of those who are outside, the the customers, the suppliers, 
uh, all of those communities, which today are called stakeholders. And uh, the, the different range of things can go from very basic levels where a group of people uh, can be concerned about providing for their physical needs, security, food, shelter, uh, all the way uh, to, to the upper ranges of, um, of, of the hierarchy. We can use Maslow, for example, uh, to self-actualization and even self-transcendence through service. So that that would be my, my my definition. I'm not claiming that this is true and that I have the right one. Uh, it's one that works for me and, and allows me to interact people with people in a in an open manner and call them back to what's really important to them. Right. So what's important to me is very internally defined. And I'm curious: can we see from the outside? Can we look at a business and say, "Here's a litmus test to see if this is a conscious business or not"? Um, not without uh, interviewing the people who are running the business. I, I couldn't. I couldn't uh, do that. I. I mean, I could say whether the business acts as a conscious business with my experience of its behavior. So I can see people behaving, but it would be presumptuous to interpret that behavior without talking to them. So I, I, that's an interesting question. I, I never thought of trying to assess a business without interacting with the people who are leading it and, and working in it, and even the communities that are being served by it. Interesting. So really the crux of your definition is the internally defined experience. Am I coming to work to accomplish something that's important to my heart, something like that. I'm rephrasing this in sort of very friendly language um, here. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Okay, I, yeah. I, I, I think you're trying to make me clap with one hand, and, and, and you clap with both hands, um, I mean, at least uh, outside of the Zen tradition. Uh, one hand is what you just described, the internal experience, the values, and the, 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 the purpose that animates the people who are coming to to work at this company or this organization in general business doesn't have to be for profit it can be any kind of enterprise that is designed to serve the needs of external constituencies but the other part is how do you execute how do you manifest that that uh, set of principles and values and purposes in action so that if you if you imagine the club on the one what i what i what i said was you cannot assess the consciousness of a business without talking and interviewing the people who participate in this business but equally i would say you cannot assess the consciousness of the business only interviewing people you also have to see how these people manifest those principles and the purpose that animates them in action in the real world that's the other side of the equation Okay, good. So let's talk a little bit about that side of the equation. What would you want to see in a business to say that's a conscious business in terms of how people are interacting with each other? Well, um, I would want first that people are clear about what they're trying to express together. So how they interact with one another would involve 
an important discussion about why are we doing this? Why is this important? How are we serving those people that use our goods or services? Uh, they would also ask each other what's meaningful in terms of values in their lives and how they want to behave, what are the operating principles that are going to make them proud to work together and to um, provide uh, goods or services to their customers or to buy things from their suppliers. So in, in terms of the interaction of people inside the company, I would want to see this discussion being very prominent and continuous, not like, okay, at the beginning of the company, we're going to have a founding conversation, and then we, we put whatever documents we prepare in the shelf. And if someone says, well, so what's the vision of your company? People say, oh, wait a minute, I, I have to go check. And you, know, you have to go into your computer to look for that old file where you wrote what was the vision, the mission, and the values. That that would be a, 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 red, a red mark against you in my, in my book uh, in terms of evaluating the consciousness of, of the business. On the other hand, I would want to see, and perhaps even more importantly, I would want to see how the members of this organization interact with the external constituencies. Uh, how do they uh, take care of them? How do they listen to them? How do they understand that their, their, their existence depends on making the other people's lives better? Uh, not just by, by, by selling whatever they sell, but also by, um, by, by understanding what needs their products cover, uh, helping people make wise choices about what products to buy, um, and, and in essence, attempting to make people's lives better. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, I always feel surprised when people talk about economics and business from a fairly superficial perspective. Uh, I understand why, because um, without going too deep into the history of economic thought, the, the neoclassical perspective of economics, the one that uh, summarizes or creates a caricature of man as a homo economicus, is, is really shallow. It's a very superficial way to interpret the human being as a money-making entity. But, but the truth is, we don't care about the money. We, we, we care about what money can buy. Money is always a medium uh, to, to achieve other satisfactions, which could be pretty animalistic, like the satisfaction of instincts to go all the way down uh, uh, to, to something angelic, all the way up to, to the highest reaches of bodhisattvic consciousness. Uh, and, and economics is totally um, open in terms of the whole range. It doesn't say this is good or this is bad, or we're only going to look at the lower, the lower part of the spectrum. Uh, what economics says is you as a human being are trying to expand your life, and the only way you can do it is in a peaceful cooperation with other people who are going to find value in your service because your service allows them to expand their lives in the way they see fit. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very open, caring approach to doing business where I realize people pay me because I'm doing something for them that they consider improves their lives more than what they have to lose in order to pay me and to abstain from buying something else with that money. And that, that's, the, that's the way I would 
assess a business in terms of consciousness? Do people realize that their primary job and the most important thing they can do is make the lives of their customers better and not consume too many resources that could be available to others in society? Now, if, you, if, if I have to say this in economic terms, is you're, you're, you're adding value because you're creating value with uh, little use of resources. And that's how you make money. You, you, buy, you buy cheap and you sell expensive. Uh, you know, I'm going from, from the, the lofty language to the, to the crass one. Uh, but buying cheap means you're, you're using resources that are relatively plentiful and that uh, are, are, are not in high demand by other members of society and you're turning these plentiful resources into goods and services that are relatively scarce, that people want and they don't have enough, and that's why they're willing to pay a higher price for them. So in a conscious business, people would be businessmen and businesswomen, meaning it's not uh, a charity and because they would feel the commitment to self-regeneration. There has to be an ecological balance between what comes in and what goes out, and if that balance is broken, the business is not going to survive. But at the same time, people would see that in order to maximize the addition of value and the, 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 the profits and the compensation to all the participants in this business, they have to make the lives of everybody better, the lives of their customers, the lives of their employees, the lives of their suppliers, the lives of the communities in which they live. And that's, I mean, ironically, uh, and against what many people believe, that is the ultimate best way to make money in the long term. So once again, I'll re-paraphrase, and you tell me if I'm clapping with one hand or both hands, and but I don't want to know what the sound of one hand clapping is. I, I <laughs> okay, don't want to know good. that. That, um, that I couldn't say. Yeah, but service, serving other people, is actually what you're describing as the engine of a successful business versus some idea that greed and my own, what I want to get out of this is, you know, you're really saying if I serve all of the stakeholders, I'll be successful. Yes, yes, but I, I would not, um, let me tell you something I once heard the Dalai Lama said, and it, it, it really touched me. He was talking about selfishness, and he said, the problem is not being selfish, the problem is being stupid. Uh, if, if, if you want to be selfish, be smart about being selfish. Be really, really selfish. And what, what is the best way to be selfish? Well, you're going to have the best life if, you, if you're in love, if you connect with other people, if you're generous and you have deep relationships. I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say exactly this, but, but that, that was the gist. That's what I remember. And, and I found that very touching. And I want to say the same about greed. If you want to be greedy, be, be really greedy. Like, like go for it. Like, like go to the ultimate greed, which is you want to make the most money that anybody could make. Now, how are you going to do that? How can you maximize your profits? Absolutely. Well, just increase the service with no end. Find a way to not demand any resource. If you could produce with nothing and give something that's infinitely valuable, well, then, then you'd be immensely rich. And that's the greediest you could ever be. And then after you have all the money in the world, you can say, well, what, what's left? Well, then you can, you can continue making lives better. And then people will admire you and love you and, and, and whatever you want. So it, it's, the beauty of, of business is that it's this amazing cauldron. It's like a, 
this this alchemical um, reaction where you transform this greed into service, but but not because it's a different thing, but because service it's inherent in the spirit of greed. So when when greed you could say is the lower octave of service, but in business greed gets channeled, uh, as I was saying in in the in the crucible with the heat of competition and the heat of of the demands of all these constituencies, this greed gets transformed into service. Now, without this heat, without the constraint, when people feel empowered to use violence to achieve their goals, then they can satisfy their greeds by abusing others. So when you can use violence like a, like a thief or a kidnapper or, or some, any sort of criminal, then you can go and steal and say, yeah, I'm going to take without giving anything in return. But that's crime, that's, that's theft or, or, or assault, but that's not business. In business, it has to be voluntary. The other person has to want to trade with you, and the only way they're going to want to trade with you is if what you're offering is more important to them than what you ask from them. So, so the, the best way to be greedy, the smart way to be greedy, is to give service. I love that, the smart way to be greedy. You're talking right to me, Fred. <laughs> Good. Now, imagine somebody who says, okay, smart way to be greedy. I get how I can be of service, and that will make me a certain amount of money because I can figure this out. I'm cagey. I have stuff I can give, resources that are easily available that I can turn into a product that somebody will want or a service that somebody will want. But, you know, the truth is my heart's not really in it. My heart's not really in it, but I'm going to do it because I need the money. Is that conscious business? Well, um, let me let, let me just paraphrase what you're saying, and then we'll make a decision together. First, it cannot be easy. It may be easy for you, but if it were easy for anybody, then you would have some competitor that would... Uh, beat you to the punch or will compete all the profits away. So business is quite challenging because it's not enough that you find a way to do it. You have to find a, a way that's continually better than what anybody else can find. Because if you have other people that figure out what you're doing, well, they're going to undercut your price just a little bit. Uh, but then if you want to sell anything, you have to match them and new people will want to come in and under, undercut everybody just a little bit until you make no profits. So you, you can't stand still in the way you serve people. You have to be permanently looking for new ways, new technologies, new markets, new new things, because it, it, it's not just what you do, but it's what you do in relationship to anybody else who could fulfill their purpose or achieve their satisfaction of needs through these means. So it's it's quite quite a discipline to be in business and to sustain the profits that you're earning. That I will say that. Then the other thing is, if your heart is not in it, uh, and you're, you have to say, well, you know, is it worth all the money you're you're making? So let's just say, you have, as, as a human being, you have a whole range of things you could do. You could you could work as an employee for someone else. Uh, you could start another business. Uh, you could go be a monk. You can you can kill yourself. I mean, I don't know. You have infinite range of opportunities in front of you. And at any moment in your life, if you are conscious, you are making a choice. What 
into what opportunity are you going to press? What, what are you going to energize with your life force so that it manifests? And whatever you do, it has to be the best possible thing you can imagine doing at the time. That, that is the nature of any human being, if you are conscious. Now, if you are behaving unconsciously, like if you're drugged or you're asleep and you turn around, then it's not a conscious choice. But as long as you're awake and you're, you're reasonably sober, anything you do, more or less meditated, it's the best choice that you experience in the moment. And, you know, even if you jump off a cliff and then you break a leg or something, and someone says, well, why did you jump? Uh, the answer has to be, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And that's always the answer. Whatever you do, it has to seem like a good idea when you do it. Five seconds later, you might go, oh, no, what did I do? And now, now you call it a mistake. But you never consciously make a mistake. Even when you say, oh, this is a mistake, well, maybe you don't like it, but you still think it's the best thing you could do in the moment, given the conditions in which you find yourself. So when a person starts a business or they choose to work in a business, it is the best thing they can do in the moment. Now, you might do it unreflectively, and you might do it driven by instincts without paying attention, and do it in a way that also curtails your future possibilities, so with a very small time horizon, I would say that's not only irrational, but that, uh, that is relatively unconscious. You can think of consciousness as a light that, that has a dimmer, and you can have a very low light where you just see a little bit into the future and around you. So uh, to use the metaphor of the circles of care and compassion, you, you can have a circle of care, compassion, and, and time horizon that is rather small, so so you're 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 like uh, holding a flashlight or a lantern that is very very weak, or you can create a huge surge of energy, and now this lantern is massive, and you have this bright light that's illuminating all the way to the outer confines of the galaxy or eternity, and, and you're thinking, you know, 20 generations ahead, how is this going to affect all human beings and all sentient beings in this world and other possible worlds? Okay, and that's part of your choice. And you're making choices that in the short term may look ridiculous and may look almost sacrificial to someone who doesn't see, but for you it's an investment because you're taking the pain in the moment because you see the, the purpose that animates you and the goal in the long term. So I would say every person, whatever they do, they're doing the best thing they can conceive at the time. So part of being conscious is not to poo-poo your choices, to say, well, well, I hate this, but I'm going to do it. Well, if you hate it and you need to do it because this is the best choice, then, then do it and appreciate yourself for doing it. However, while you do it, consciousness would mean asking yourself, what have I done or not done in the past that has brought me to a situation where my choices are so limited that the best thing I can do is still something I hate doing? And what am I going to do now in addition to this that I need to do right now so I don't find myself in the same condition a year from now? And maybe while you do this business, which is enough to put food on the table and, and, and support your family or whatever you're doing with it, you're studying something different or you're saving money to, to try a new endeavor or to pursue your dreams or to help people in a different way, whatever it is. But that will require this extra consciousness where you're not just doing this in the moment, but you have a, a much longer time horizon and you're able to delay gratification now 
in the service of something that's more important to you in the future. In, in economics, that would mean you have a low discount rate. Uh, that, that, that's a technical way to say that you, you feel the future almost as present as the present, as opposed to, let's just say, someone that has uh, not a very developed consciousness that say, well, you know, tomorrow, I don't know if I'll be alive tomorrow. I mean, let, let me just use Keynes, someone I absolutely dislike, uh, who said, well, in the long term, we're all dead. And so, you know, print money and do all these crazy things that uh, governments do that end up creating a lot of misery around them. But that that's coming from, well, in the long term, we're all dead, just live for today. So the, the opposite of that for me is consciousness, is no, no, no. Whatever you do is going to affect 50 generations. And, and, and it doesn't matter if you're alive or dead. Uh, from a from a spiritual standpoint, your your karma, if I can use that word, will project itself way beyond your physical existence. And you can perfectly well consider that in, in the moment you're making the choice, if your mind is wide enough to encompass the 50 generations. That works for me, the idea of a dimmer switch and increasing consciousness, increasing reach of one's whole being. Now, Fred, our conversation has been relatively abstract so far. We're talking about what imaginary people might be doing in the workplace, and I'd like to make it more concrete. In your role going into all kinds of companies as a consultant and trainer, I'm curious what you're finding in the businesses that you're working in is the greatest challenge that people are presenting to you that they're having in terms of wanting to be more conscious in business. Well, the biggest challenge that I experience, and and I confess it's also my bias because I have sensitivity towards that, so I can't say that this is the biggest challenge. This is what appears as the challenge that we consider together because we both bring energy to the interaction. The biggest challenge is what I would call the shame of doing business unconsciously. People have uh, a big inner demon that attacks them, saying that they're not good people because they're making money. So some of them will say, well, the hell with this, you know, I'm just going to make money. And some of them will say, yes, you know, I'm so sorry, I... I know I'm abusing people because I'm taking their money and, and, and this profit is, 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 is exploitation of the workers and surplus value and all this Marxist crap that, that assaults people as, as an inner critic. And then that, that brings them back. That, that, that brings them down into um, an area where it's hard to think and hard to, to grow. So the, 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 always the first part of my work is to invite people to, 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 to feel the nobility of the true purpose that animates them, to, to find it in their heart. And always, no matter what you're doing, you can be a banker, you can be a baker, you can be um, you know, producing anything that is satisfying a human need. And if you go deep down, you'll find, you'll find some way in which that is connected to a noble purpose. There are things that are connected very tenuously, and we can go into some of those. I don't have clients that do those things. I mean, I'm thinking like, I don't know, gambling or or, or um, uh, some some thing that you could say. Well, this puts people in a in a state of stupor, 
but but uh, most I mean I, I've worked even with people who uh, work for tobacco companies and you could say oh but this is bad or or alcohol companies and a lot of people say it's bad but you know in some sense it's it's a it's it's an good that other people aspire and since the beginning of uh, humanity people have been trying to alter their mind through substances all sorts of substances so I don't have this this opinion that uh, I have to judge them and say that's wrong but they judge themselves uh, not not just because of what they sell but because they think somehow and I think it's in the culture that you can only make money as a zero-sum game, meaning if you make money, you're taking it from somewhere else. Um, the pie is fixed, and the more you get, the less other people get, which is so wrong. It's it's a mistake technically in economics, and it's a mistake humanly in terms of the richness and the value that people create together when they they exist in a cooperative manner, and they, they can be peaceful and supportive of one another. The, the, the gains are immense, enormous, beyond calculation. So the first thing I, I help people do is to realize that it is possible to unleash all their strength, all their energy in a very noble way to pursue what, what matters to them, to, to actually find a vision that, that they feel proud to pursue and they feel proud to pursue with their colleagues, that they, they can all come together and say, oh, this is, we, we feel... Uh, we feel like like our humanity shining while we do this. We don't have to hide it, and we don't have to be apologetic for doing this. And then once they, they, they're free, once they're free to use their whole mind and their whole heart and their gut in, in, in this pursuit, then we start thinking, okay, what would be the smartest, most courageous, and most loving way to go into the world to do this? And, and and I know this may you may say you may say oh this is abstract you're talking to me sounds true I swear to God this is the way I talk to you know the CEO of a bank in Indonesia I'm going in two weeks to Jakarta and I've been working with this bank for more than a year I'm going to go it's the biggest bank in Indonesia I would say three quarters of the people are Islamic and they they are super committed to having a, a spiritual approach to what they're doing. And I'm going to help them find what they call now the noble purpose, because they want to rethink what they have as a tagline and all this, because it used to be more of a marketing thing. And through this work, they realized, no, this is this is a very important, this is the heart of our company. And, and, and now that we feel proud, we have to find a way to bring this pride in a way that the 30,000 people that work with us in the back could connect to it without necessarily spending all the time that we spend together. And, and I'm going back to help them this. And I, I, I speak to them like this. I, I work with um, laboratories that are making medicine. And I tell you, these this research scientists are, are, I mean, they love the possible patients. And they are thinking all the time. In fact, my daughter has asthma and, uh, and, and uses one of the medicines that these people developed. And I, I didn't know, but but I saw the name of that uh, medicine in one of the seminars that I was doing. Some people were talking about that, and I said, "I can't believe you are doing this." And, and yes, they 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 are the ones that develop the medicine, and they are they are speaking about sick people and how to help them be better all the time. Now, again, I, I'm not so naive that I don't know that some people will look will commit fraud or will do 
other things that are not very noble in order to extract money. I just think that's not only evil, but but that is really unprofitable as well. Uh, I I don't appeal to people's sense of morality because those who do wrong things they know they're wrong, uh, but they think that they're profitable. That that's where they make a mistake. And as they realize that it's much more profitable to be ethical, then they actually realize that they don't have to do this trade-off, and it becomes very concrete and very, very practical. I work with car companies. I work with um, insurance companies. I work with airplane builders, I mean, chemical companies, oil companies. And, And again, you know, everywhere, this question what will it take to free your mind, open your heart, and act with courage in order to provide the best service with the least consumption of resources? That that gets everybody exciting. I mean, that that's that's so so interesting. It's it's so challenging. It's such a such a, an amazing question to ponder, and then to be able to act on it and to create worlds for people that that depend on you for their existence or for their improved existence that 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 that's just the most interesting i can't imagine a better job for me it just makes my heart sink to be a consultant and be permanently engaged in this conversation with all my clients now fred i can imagine someone listening thinking oh the conscious business consultant who's happy to work with tobacco companies oil companies pharmaceutical yes. companies and yes. that there's no sense of there being any contradiction in that for you, like obviously pointing out to people how their products have created harm for different people, even if there's a demand yes. for it. Yes. Oh, well, but of course I, I, I point out how their products could create harm and I invite them to be conscious of that. But, but I mean, I love, I love that challenge. So I mean, can you use the voice and just challenge me like what would you say where so uh, say i'm not being conscious or i'm doing something that's well let's take the we'll take the tobacco company you know okay how could you possibly help a tobacco company be more successful in the sales of their cigarettes knowing that it's an addictive substance that will create harm and could potentially create the early death of millions of people teenagers who become addicted at a young age because of their effective ads honest i don't work with any tobacco company in 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 selling tobacco i've i've i think someone from my company worked with um with some division that was producing food but but it doesn't matter i mean i'll just i'll just take that because i think it's a it's a great it's a great example it's fun to challenge you fred because you're so wicked yeah yeah, i like i like that so 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 i just i just want to i just want to be honest because i'm going to do a role play and i don't want to pretend that i'm I'm doing something real, but but I feel everything I'm I'm going to say would be exactly the same, and I would work under certain conditions with a tobacco company, under these conditions with a company that sold cigarettes. Uh, and 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 the, the, my answer would be: Look, first, lots of things shorten people's lives, and uh, I mean, are you going to tell me that you're going to be the judge of how people want to shorten their lives? Like people like to climb mountains, and you know, lots of people die climbing mountains, so you can hurt yourself. So then are you going to say that anybody who sells carabiners or ropes or climbing equipment is, is contributing to people dying? And the truth is they do. Uh, or anybody who sells cars, you know, lots of people dying cars. 
uh, lots of people die swimming. I mean, no matter what you choose, so people people can die doing anything, and I don't I don't feel I I have to be the judge of how people choose to take risks or not. Uh, I I would not do that. Now let's take an addictive substance. Well, lots of things are addictive. Sugar is addictive. Uh, all sorts of food can be addictive. I think committing fraud is disgusting. So telling people this is not going to get you addicted when I know it's going to make them addictive, that that is that is a crime. But but you can you know you can sell uh, milk with melanin. You, you don't have to sell tobacco. The, the the problem is being a criminal. No matter what you do, you can build a bridge with uh, with bad cement that is going to fall and kill a lot of people. So. I'm not talking about being a criminal, but let's just talk about an honest tobacco executive, a person that is selling and speaking the truth and telling people, look, if you smoke, this is the thing that can happen to you, and this is the truth, and I want you to take a responsible risk. If you think that this is worthwhile, then do it. And I, I personally, I mean, I would not want to be in that business. It doesn't make my heart sing. It doesn't feel like, like this is my calling. But if, if someone is, I mean, I don't know. Where, where are you going to go to say uh, we're going to start another war on drugs, let's start a war on tobacco, and then put people in jail for selling tobacco? I mean, where, where is that taking you? That's totally fascist. So I would like a world in which people can make responsible choices. And anything that's peaceful, anything that's consensual, it's okay. And as long as people are truthful and are making uh, choices, understanding the consequences, hey, you know, it's your life. You live it any way you want. I may disagree with you. I may advocate against it. I will not sell things that I personally would not. But, you know, sugary foods or, or fatty foods probably kill more people than tobacco. So um, I would have more problems working for a soda company that's selling sugary things to, to, to young kids than for a tobacco company that's uh, you know, letting responsible adults make a decision about how they want to live their life and what gives them enough pleasure uh, to shorten that life if they choose to do so. So anyway, that would be my, uh, my advocacy for working with people that are coming with a spirit of openness and truthfulness uh, to an economic transaction with other people who want to uh, use whatever good or service they sell. I want to circle back to something because you said something very interesting that the experience you have going into work with some highly successful, financially successful executives is this shame. I'm making money at the expense of someone else in some way. And you talked about how this idea that there's a pie, a limited pie, and if I take a big piece, then other people aren't getting their piece of the pie. And as you were saying that, I realized that there's clearly a part of me that believes that, and yet you're saying that's totally false, that doesn't fit with what we know about genuine economic theory. And I'm wondering if you can explain that. Oh, yeah. How did that belief come into being? Well, it's, uh, it's an illusion. It's like the belief that the sky is blue. I mean, you look up and you see the sky blue. Uh, now, take an airplane, you'll see the sky is not blue. You see it blue, it looks blue, but it's not blue. Just like the water may look green, but if you take a bucket, you'll see it's not green. Even though you know it's not green, you still see it green. Uh, we, we can't control what our eyes see. And there's a similar illusion uh, with economic transactions. 
but but if you think about it just for a minute, I mean, I, 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 let me show you because it's it's almost instantaneous. It's so easy to see. Let's just say that I sell you an apple. So you buy an apple for let's say fifty cents. Now, it has to be the case. It must be the case that the apple is worth to you at least fifty cents. You see that because if it was worth to you less than fifty cents, you would never pay fifty cents. Let's just say if I ask you how much are you willing to pay for an apple, I said twenty-five. I said, oh, sorry, it's fifty. I said, okay, well, no deal. Then you don't buy it. You'll buy something else because the apple is not worth fifty cents. So let me pause there. You agree with me? I'm with so you far? so far. So far, I'm totally with okay. you. So, so the apple. The only thing we know is the apple is worth at least fifty cents. But perhaps you would be willing to pay a dollar or two or three. I don't know how much you're willing to pay, but certainly more than fifty cents. Let's just say you're willing to pay a dollar. Now, I'm selling you the apple. I'm selling you the apple for fifty cents. It has to be the case that it costs me less than fifty cents to put that apple in your hand. If not, I would be making money. I would be losing money. So in terms of how much the apple is worth to me, if, if we're talking simply about barter or, or I produce the apple or I can consume the apple or sell it to you, if I, if I have to decide that, then uh, it, it's a simple equation where we say it's worth more than 50 cents to you, it's worth less than 50 cents to me, and that's why we trade. So in that trade, let's just say the apple was worth 25 cents to me and a dollar to you. Well, we created a lot of value because it's not like Aristotle said, and he was mistaken too. He said, you know, the, the just price is the the, 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 the the one that makes the two people equal. No, no, there's no just price. Anything that's voluntary, anything that's peaceful is just. So if you pay 50 cents, maybe the apple was worth $5 to you. You, you made a, a sort of consumer profit of $4.5. I don't know how much it was worth. I only know... You were willing to pay fifty cents for it, and and maybe you know maybe I, I it cost me twenty five cents to produce, maybe it cost me five cents to produce, maybe it cost me one cent to produce, maybe I got it for free, but who cares? So the the, the value in that transaction is not fifty cents. Let's just say it costed me twenty five cents and it's worth a dollar to you. There's a seventy five cent net gain in the transaction where I took twenty five cents and you took fifty cents extra because when we traded for fifty cents you made 50 cents more because it was worth a dollar and i made 25 cents in monetary profit because i had a cost i mean the difference between a, a company and a, and a normal consumer is that the company purely operates on the basis of economic calculation as a rational entity that's profit maximizing whereas the consumer has all these other um, unknowable uh, preferences inside his mind and his heart uh, if it's a barter, then you know the only thing I can say is I found that my best choice was to trade the apple with you, and you found that your best choice was to trade your 50 cents with me. So we both must have gained in the transaction. There is never, ever, ever a fixed buy, and that's in the in the in the worst kind of transaction where we have a, a thing, and then we're simply exchanging that thing. But if you go into production. If you look at the, the evolution of the population in the world, from about 10 million years ago until the year 1800, the, the human population of the world went from, I don't know, just a few thousands to about 700 million. So it took more than 10 million years 
to go from the, the beginning to 700 million. It only took 300 years to go from 700 million to 7 billion. And, and, and if you look at the population curve, there, there's an inflection point. And, and it's not just the number of people. The, the, the years that people live, the decrease in child mortality, the health of people, the, 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 the capacity to acquire goods and services. I mean, every, every indicator that you look at has gone dramatically up. Of course, it can go a lot better, and, and we're, we're nowhere close to the human potential. But saying, I mean, if the world was a fixed, uh, a fixed pie, how can you explain that the carrying capacity of this world for millions and millions of years was, you know, less than 500 million people, and whenever you had more than that, people started dying and starvations and, and, and big, um, uh, big blights and, and, and all sorts of pests that would kill people everywhere in the world. And then something happened that human beings learned how to provide for example, plumbing and sewage, which was the most important medical advance in the history of humanity. Uh, well, you know, there were companies that started providing clean water, and they learned how to build houses that would not um, make everybody sick with materials. And, and that took a long time. But as soon as you start producing in a cooperative manner, as, as soon as you start dividing the division of labor and the and, and the advantage, uh, taking advantage of the natural differences between human beings so we can specialize and then we can do what we do best and trade our, our services and to, to work cooperatively to produce something together. The gains of that are phenomenal. Adam Smith calculated uh, with a famous example of a pin factory that the gains of having 10 people where everybody did one nail at a time, the whole thing. Or you divided the 10 people in functions, and one person would just get the, you know, the iron, I don't know the technical, how you make a nail, but whatever operations need, need to be done to make a nail, they went from, whatever, 100 nails a day to 100,000. So there was like, I mean, some outrageous 1,000 times or 10,000 times more productivity simply in doing that, without specializing, without learning, without any of that. So I, I, I find it incredible, the, the, the illusion. I mean, if someone told me the earth was flat, I would find it less laughable than when someone says, yeah, there's a fixed pie, and when you make money, every great fortune is based on a great crime. If you make money, you're taking it from somewhere else. That, that is just ludicrous. It's false. It's, it's, a, it's one of the worst myths that are holding us back as a civilization, and they don't allow us to cooperate. So I like to dispel it, and I like for people to feel proud of cooperating with others and creating better and better lives for everybody. Now, Fred, you know, I'm going to switch our conversation a little bit because I know you both as the author of the Sounds True book, Conscious Business, How to Build Value Through Values, but also as a uh, fellow Dharma practitioner. I hope it's okay for me to bring that forward. Yes, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm very proud of it. Someone that I've uh, been to meditation retreats with and practiced alongside. And I'm curious if you see any contradiction at all between your spiritual life, the life of a meditator, and the work you do in business. No, not at all. Let, let me give you two examples. No, I mean, 
not not only not at all, but it's it's the the ultimate unity. So first, I'll give you an example from the Western tradition and and, and go towards the East, and then I'll come from the Eastern tradition uh, coming towards the West. So first, there, there's a there's a beautiful article by uh, an economist named Leonard Reed. He wrote it in the 1930s, and it's called I Pencil. And the article is the autobiography of a pencil, a number two pencil. It, anybody can go to the web. If you say I pencil read, R-E-E-D, you'll find it. There's, there's thousands of, of places where the article is. It's a classic article. And what Leonard Reed says is to make this pencil, nobody in the world knows how to make a pencil. That 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 very humble, simple thing like a pencil, it's almost unimaginably complex to produce because to make that pencil, you have to cut the wood in, in, in Canada, and then you need... Um, the, the iron and the metal to to make the the saws that cut the wood, and then you need the shipping of this wood, so it goes to factories that are in the United States, and then you need uh, rubber in uh, in Brazil uh, or Malay, uh, and then the rubber has to be processed chemically with things that nobody even knows. I mean, it's just the complexity, and 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 and, and you start going back into this very simple pencil and you discover the whole universe and everything and, and and thousands of years of history and 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 the parents of the loggers that had to build houses close to the forest were the loggers i mean you can go on and on and on and perhaps you can start feeling the similarity of this with with the the notion of no thingness that emptiness shunyata everything is empty because nothing is itself. I mean, everything is in everything, and you can't find any boundary. As soon as you start penetrating more and more into the thing, you see that it dissolves like water. It falls through your fingers. It slips, and, and, and you, there's, there's nothing to grasp. So you say, well, what could be more graspable than a pencil? You can hold it in your hand. Oh, no, no, big mistake. If you're really conscious, you will see that this pencil dissolves in utter nothingness, in the mystery of the beginningless beginning, all the way to the endless end, and you have absolutely no idea how this came to be, and all the infinite things that had to happen for this very humble pencil to rest in your hand. So that's one. And then, then, then let me go from the other side. I, and I, I finished my book with this story because it was so touching. When you look at the ox herding pictures, the, the ten um, wood carvings that define the road or the path to enlightenment, according to the Zen tradition. This is from China in the 12th or 13th century. Um, it's, it's an incredible map that starts with a picture that says, well, the ox is lost. You know, the, the, the herder is, is, is in the middle of the forest. He can't find the ox. He's looking everywhere. And the ox, of course, is the mind. And the herder is any one of us that we've lost our mind. And we see that there are signs of our mind everywhere, but, but we don't know where it's wandered because we're so undisciplined. Our mind goes in its own direction, and, and we, we don't have any way to discipline it and, and manage it. So throughout the carvings, this herder will tracks the ox, finds the ox, tames the ox, brings the ox home, and, and so on and so forth. You know, just learns to meditate and finally becomes one with the mind. And then number nine, beautifully, is emptiness. 
Oh, it's great. You know, it's just that's what you think of then. You know, it's nine, and and you get to the end, and then it's the the emptiness that you've been seeking all along, the unity that dissolves into emptiness. But there's a problem because that's number nine. So what? I, and I, I remember when I read this, what the hell is going to be ten? You know, this this is it. This is this is where it ends. So so I I, I turned the page, and the the carving number ten is called literally coming back to the market with open hands. And and you have this Buddha laughing, going to the marketplace with the intention to help. Now, that, that that's the end of the path of enlightenment, which is to become a businessman. And, and this is not what I say. This is this is the Zen monk saying, look, once once you get there, then you go back to the marketplace open-handedly serving other people. And, and, you know, I could say, and laughing all the way to the bank because you're making so much money doing it. And then you can help more people. And, and it's all great. And there's... Nobody doing it because it's just happening in this emptiness. The the compassion and, and and the love for other people arise, and it manifests as service in a way that doesn't consume resources. So that that's the that would be the the, the meditator's way, you know, the Zen way to talk about enlightenment uh, while you're still embodied and, and operating as a human being. So both from east to west and east to west, uh, west to east, I would say. There is no, not only there's no conflict, but it's a perfect harmony. So I have one final question for you, Fred. Okay. What I feel in you as we speak is a kind of very interesting warrior energy, a sense of being a warrior for what you believe in, for what you've discovered. And I'm curious how you would describe it if you relate to this idea of being a warrior, and if so, what you're a warrior in the name of, what you stand for. Mm. Warrior is, when you said that, what came, the, the, the immediate thought I had was Shiva. And, and rather than a warrior, I feel more of a destroyer of the illusion that, that, that creates suffering. Uh, and what I, what I find most deeply in my heart is, is the lover. It's, it's my love and my desire to see people shine and, and grow and thrive. And that that's what makes my heart sing. I, I don't like I don't like the fight so much. I get I get a little excited because I see all these ugly ties that, that create suffering and I I would love to release all these human beings that are struggling from, from that suffering that is mostly imagined and self inflicted because they are struggling with their own demons and shadows which don't exist, like the story of the, 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 the snake that, that is really a, a rope. Uh, th- there's no, no need to kill the, st- the snake. So I, I'm not a warrior killing snakes. I'm more a warrior turning on the light and laughing and saying, hey, you know, it's a rope. Don't, don't worry about it. We just, just, let's just dance by it and, and, and go forward. And that, but what animates me, what moves me is more this, this desire and this love that I feel for for people and when I see them grow it's just such a beautiful thing when I see people able to shine and, and, and find their truth and then manifest the truth making other people shine with their service it's it's the most beautiful sight in the world for me wonderful I've been speaking with Fred Kaufman he's the author of a book from Sounds True called Conscious Business 
how to build value through values. And the book Conscious Business actually goes into quite some detail about how you can implement many very practical on-the-ground principles of working in a business. It's a book that's been so helpful to our entire team here at Sounds True. Fred is also the creator of a nine-and-a-half-hour audio training course on conscious business, Transforming Your Workplace and Yourself by Changing the Way You Think, Act, and Communicate, also a very practical program with all kinds of role plays and examples of how to change the way you think, act, and communicate in the workplace. Fred, it's always wonderful, stimulating, provocative to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was equally wonderful for me to talk to you again. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.